Good morning, everybody. You know, as you come to, um, as a pastor, you come to a subject like the one we're looking at this morning, you know that it's uh, being heard with, uh, with uh, many uh, different sets of emotions and expectations and experiences. Have a conversation with another person about homosexuality and the whole issue of same-sex marriage, and it's likely that there's going to be strong feelings one way or the other, especially when your conversation involves a close friend or family member. It might be right now, there's some, some very deep emotions running through you. It could be anxiety and even fear over what I'm about to say. You might be wondering if, if this is going to be a personal attack on you. Uh, you may have come here today with a whole lot of anger and frustration, either anger toward those who favor same-sex marriage or anger toward those who oppose it. You might be confused about the whole issue, and frankly, you're mostly tired of people fighting over it. I'm also confident that there's some very differing expectations for what I'm about to say. I've got, I've got to be honest with you, I, I've received more coaching on this sermon than any other sermon that I remember uh, preparing and preaching. And, and, and I know, I, 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 so I know that some of you right now are counting on me to come down hard on anyone who's gay or lesbian. Others of you would say, no, I don't want you to come down hard on anybody, but I also don't want you to soft-pedal this whole issue. I, I've come here today expecting that you would talk about the fact that homosexuality and same-sex marriage are wrong. I know, on the other hand, there are some of you who have come here today hoping that I'll say that Scripture allows for someone to be a practicing homosexual and, and that same-sex marriage is a good thing as long as it's monogamous. And then there's some of you who came here today with a whole lot of mixed feelings and questions. You're, you're not sure what's right or wrong and, and, and your hope today, your expectation is that I'll help you figure this one out. Most of us, in fact, I would say maybe many of us, what we've experienced in terms of friendship and family and education in the church and where we work plays a, a huge, significant part in how we come to this subject today. I know for me, this goes all the way back to the 50s, believe it or not, to my days in, in grade school, knowing someone who is gay and who was one of the kindest and most thoughtful classmates I had during my first six years in school. And seeing the same person picked on and teased and ridiculed and, and even back then at that point, really not understanding the whole issue, obviously, as a, as a grade school kid, I still found myself defending him and, and really quite upset at how he was being treated by others. Today, I have a very good friend who's gay. He's one of the most devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And one, and I, I've known this personally, one of the, the most thoughtful and caring friends that I'm privileged to have. And as I'm sure that many of you do, I have extended family members who I care for deeply, who are living a gay lifestyle. This next month, we're going to have a, a wedding in our, our extended family of somebody who's gay. Now, I'm confident that there's more than a few of you here today who identify yourself as homosexual. 
And if I could have a conversation with you, I'd probably hear the same thing that I've, I've heard many times, and I believe it's true. You would say that you've never known yourself to be any other way. And I know that it took a lot of courage for you to come here this morning. I, I can see why you might feel that you're being targeted or why there's a whole lot of anxiety and even fear inside over what I'm going to be saying in these next few minutes. And I want to I wanna thank you for coming this morning. And I have so much respect for you that you've, that you've done that. I say all of this because the one thing I want you to know before I say anything else is that I care deeply for every single one of you here this morning, what, whatever your view is on this whole subject that we're going to be talking about. And that's one reason I have a request this morning. And that is that there will be no applause, there will be no clapping from anybody at any point during this sermon. All right? And even at the end. All right? Now, we've titled this series, Following Jesus in a Changing Culture. And if there's ever a time I want to follow Jesus well, it's this morning. I believe one of the most profound and complete descriptions of Jesus is the one that John gave in, in the first chapter of his gospel when he wrote about our, our Savior's coming to this earth, his incarnation, when he became one with us in our humanity. I just love these words. He, John writes, the word became flesh, and the word is a, a, a description, a title there that's given of Jesus. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. And then John said this about him, full of grace, and truth. I love that description of Jesus, full of grace and truth. It was true of everything he did. It was true of every word he spoke. It was true of how he responded to every person. I cannot think of anything better to have as an example to follow. And that's what I want to do this morning. I, I want every word I say to be true to God's word. And I want every word to be full of the grace of Jesus Christ. And I would, I would say, everybody, the challenge I give to all of us is, is that this is what you and I should have as the desire in every conversation and all that we say and all that we do with other people. Now, I say this knowing If we're going to build our lives around Scripture, around God's Word, we've got to be willing to hear the parts that are difficult emotionally for us to hear. You and I, myself included, we cannot accept one part of God's Word and ignore another, whatever the issue might be. So first of all, what Jesus himself said about marriage. And it's written down uh, in Scripture by both Mark and Matthew in the gospel, their gospel accounts of Christ's life. Mark in the 10th chapter and Matthew in the 19th chapter. And I'm going to read from Matthew's account. Matthew chapter 19, the first nine verses. And we read this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. 
Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, they, they were asking him this question because of the debate that was going on by the, by the Jewish religious leaders over this whole issue of divorce. And so Jesus, uh, in response to their question, gives to us a key statement in Scripture on sexuality and marriage. And this is what he said. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. And so they are no long, longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, they were asking this question because they didn't like the answer that Jesus gave. All right? They, they, so they, they tried to use Moses as, as leverage, as an argument that you could divorce your wife for any reason you wanted to divorce her. They were taking what Moses said out of context and, and leaving out all the boundaries that Moses had given. And so Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. Okay? He said, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. First of all, so we don't miss this, Jesus is speaking. This is the eternal Son of God giving to us this defining definition of marriage. This is the one who came to earth to be our Savior. This is the resurrected Son of God. Who's speaking. And what we discover is that when asked to weigh in in the whole Jewish uh, divorce uh, debate on divorce, Jesus sides with the more conservative side and disallows divorce for any cause except for sexual immorality. But what's so important to see today is that he bases his answer on a right understanding of marriage, and he quotes from God himself, speaking at the point of our creation and the beginning of marriage when it all started, when God said it's a lifelong union between a man and a woman. It's very clear. God speaking at the point of our creation, and Jesus restating what God said to, to defend the sanctity of marriage makes it very clear that marriage is one man and one woman in a lifetime relationship. Read all of Scripture, and you'll see this is consistently taught every time marriage and the family is mentioned. And what you find is that what you find is that every one of those passages is it's a marriage and a family with a mother and a father. It's always this way in scripture. It, it, every single scripture passage teaches this. No exception. The reason for this, okay, is that God in his loving wisdom 
plan for marriage and the family to be really the foundation of a nation. We just can't miss this. What we're talking here is a very, very large issue. We will not have a strong nation without strong marriages and strong families. Long before the institutions of the church and, or government were established, God gave us both marriage and the family, and God gave them to us for the prop, propagation and the preparation of the next generation. All right? So that there could be a next generation and so that it would be strong. Now, to state the obvious... This is why, then, God created men the way he created men and women the way he created women. He made us physically distinct and for each other so that we're able to bring children into the world. It's also true that life is a continuing passage of one generation to the next. And this being true, God gave us a way to make this a success. It's with a mom and a dad in a lifetime relationship investing in each one of their children. Every study, not only scripture, every study tells us that this is the best for children. Kids with the same mom and dad in a loving and well-parented environment do better in every aspect of their lives than kids raised in any other context. God in his wisdom designed the family to be this way, and, and it's just true. It's an established fact that it's optimal for kids. Now, I say this with immense gratitude for the heroic efforts of single dads and single moms and grandparents who do parenting. Just last Sunday, I had a, one of, really, probably the most treasured time that I had last Sunday morning was with a single father with his, with his son, his young son. And to see the love in that father's face for his child and, and to have conversation with him and to be able to pray with him was the greatest privilege that I had last Sunday. I've seen this enough to know that incredible uh, single parents have done an incredible job of parenting and they have wonderful children, but I've also had many conversations with single parents who have said to me over and over again how much they wish that they didn't have to do it alone, how much better it would have been for their kids to have their dad and their mom with them. So very clearly, God has given it to us in his word. Marriage is one man and one woman in a lifetime relationship. It's also very important for us to have a clear understanding of what scripture teaches us about homosexuality. So I like to just look at two passages this morning, one from the Old Testament and the other one from the New. So first of all, what God said about the city of Sodom through the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel. And, and so I'm going to read Read this to you from, from, uh, from the 16th chapter. Now, the way it's, why it's written this way, notice how he begins. He said, 
Ezekiel begins, now this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. What he's doing there is he's speaking to the, the people living in the city of Jerusalem. He's, he's confronting them for their wickedness. And he's describing this other city, the city of Sodom, in terms of, of a, like a sister, a family. And it does this throughout the whole thing. He said, now this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, in other words, the other towns or the cities around there, like Gomorrah, for example, had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. Now, I remember the first time these verses really got my attention. Up to that point, the only thing that I knew about Sodom came from Genesis 19. As a child, I heard the story from, from that chapter about God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Judgment God brought because of the wickedness of the people living in those two cities. It's, i, I got to tell you, it's a story that definitely made an impression on me as a child. All right? Genesis 18 and 19. But the thing that bothers me, the thing that bothers me looking back is that we were never once told the whole reason for God's judgment. The only thing that I heard as a child that we were told in the church I was growing up in is that it was because the men of the city were engaged in homosexual activity. That was it. There wasn't mention of any other sin. Nothing said about their arrogance. Nothing said about their gluttony. They're stuffing themselves with may, way more food than they should eat. Nothing about their selfish self-centeredness. Nothing, nothing about their unwillingness to help the poor and the, and the needy. Honestly, everybody, that bothers me. It, it, it bothers me quite a lot, actually. That the sin, only the sin of men pursuing sexual relations with men was given as the reason for God's judgment. And as I've thought about this, I'm convinced that it points to how easy it is for us to pick one sin above the other and ignore our own sin that is equally serious in God's sight. We just cannot miss this. If there's anything that you leave with this morning, I hope it's this, that you and I, we cannot rank sin. We, we all stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. That being said, as your pastor, I cannot overlook the fact that God did include the sin of men having sex with other men as one of the reasons for bringing judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Not only is this made clear in Genesis chapter 19 and 18 and 19, it's also included in these, in these verses in Ezekiel 16. And so this statement again, and uh, you can just go to the next slide. And this statement, very end, they were haughty and did an abomination before me. The abomination referred to here is pursuing homosexual activity. And we know this is true because the same Hebrew word is used in Leviticus chapter 18 and chapter 20, where a man having sexual relations with a man is called an abomination. Now, so obviously, what we're talking about is homosexuality. 
That was one of the sins of the city of Sodom. Now, there's one more set of verses that's important for us to see. They're found in the first chapter of the New Testament book of Romans, beginning in verse 18. And I'm going to be reading a lot of scripture. So just track with me on this, all right? And you'll understand why when we're all done. The wrath of God, Paul writes, is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Because of this, that is because they were suppressing the truth of God, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received them themselves the due penalty for their sin. Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on. He said, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no faithfulness. They don't keep their commitments. No love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, there's two reasons I've read this passage. First, to show what's very easy to see, men having sex with men and women having sex with women is clearly sinful behavior in the sight of God. There, there is simply no way to talk around this. But there's a second and equally important reason that I've read all of these verses. It's to know that in this same context, in the same warning of God's judgment, the sin of greed and envy, and deceit, and malice, and, and gossip, and slander, and arrogance, and children disobeying their parents, and unfaithfulness, and not loving other people, and not showing mercy to others, are all included as reasons we deserve God's judgment. We've got to see this. If we don't, we're going to make the worst of mistakes. We'll minimize our own sin as we unlovingly condemn others for their sin. We'll do the very thing that Paul spends the whole next chapter warning us not to do. Now, i got to tell you, everybody, this is not an easy sermon for me to preach. And not because it takes courage. Courage has nothing to do with it. I, I committed myself when I began being a pastor to, to, to follow Jesus and speaking the truth. I, I settled this years ago. What makes it hard for me 
what I've woken up nights thinking about and praying about is the struggle and the pain that I know some of you are facing with this whole issue in your life or in the life of a close friend or family member. Maybe even a son or a daughter. What gives me the strength to do this is knowing that one of the most unloving things I could do to another person is not speak the truth. Especially the truth of God's word. I, I'd never want anyone to do this to me. I, I'd never do it to another person. I'd never want to do it to another person. And I'd never do it to the church I lead. Last Sunday... In the sermon we heard from Andy Stanley, he emphasized our responsibility to love our neighbor. I love every part of that sermon. If you haven't heard it, you've got to go online and, and watch it. North Point Church. There's several things we've got to remember about this, about loving our neighbor. Very important. First of all, love always begins where the other person is. No matter what they've done or become, it's equally important to know that love sometimes means hard conversations that result in change. It certainly doesn't mean that we throw away God's standards in favor of tolerance. Jesus himself never taught us to aspire to tolerance as, as, as a virtue. Tolerance is way too low a standard for him and for us. You and I need to follow the model of God's love for us. God loves us right where we are, just as we are. But God loves us too much to leave us that way. Remember the story in Scripture of the woman who had been caught in adultery, who was brought to Jesus by men who wanted to stone her, and he, de he defended her. He confronted them for their own wickedness. And then when they all left, he said to her, go and sin no more. This being true, I want to just take a few minutes to talk through with you several ways to be gracious and helpful, to speak the truth, but to do it full of grace. No matter what sinful behavior your conversation with another person involves. All right, so number one. Genuine friendship. I do not care what sin I struggle with in my life. It makes all the difference when the person speaking into me about it is a trusted friend. It just makes all the difference in the world. And I can also tell you this, genuine and trusted friendship also impacts my ability to overcome sin in my own life. i got to tell you, everybody, loneliness makes it so much cha more challenging to follow Jesus and do what's right. It just does. It's true for all of us. And it's definitely true for a fellow believer in Christ who recognizes that they're a homosexual, right? Who would say they've been that way their whole life. They face the same thing. They have the same need that we have for, for genuine friendship in their life to give them the support that they need, a trusted friend that they can share their life with, not just one. Respect is the next one. 
You know, we're so quick to speak and we're so slow to listen. And what makes us most harmful is when we throw out statements that are nothing more than sound bites and slogans. One-liners never do anybody any good. Just makes me so sad some of the statements that I hear Christians making in public and in person. You know, Peter gives us, I think, very, the Apostle Peter, very wise and spirit-inspired guidance on how to have conversations with others who do not believe what we believe. And he said this, he, he said, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. He said, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. You know what, everybody? We've got to read on this. We've got to read so that we speak with intelligence and, and we speak in a way that is truly respectful of the other person. And so I've got a, we put a list of books on, on, on our message page that, that I would encourage you to read. I really would. And one book I'd encourage you to read is, uh, began reading it this week, is Spiritual Friendship, Finding Love. In, uh, title of the book is Spiritual Friendship, Finding Love in the Church as a Celibate Gay Christian. Important book to read. The part I read a bit, uh, quite a bit already, man, very valuable. Then I would say this relate to the whole person. Relate to the whole person. What we're talking about this morning has become such a huge issue in our culture that it's become so easy to categorize people. And unfortunately, we've done that forever, haven't we? I mean, all the way back to when I was a kid. We've got to watch out so that we're not overstating the role of sexuality and who a person is. Sexual preference is just a small part of a partial slice of our humanity. Every person, straight or gay, is a deeply loved human being created in God's image and someone for whom God's son Jesus Christ died. And then we've got to stay humble. The truth is every one of us in this room have our own struggles with temptation. We're all on level ground before the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, we've we got to have some understanding with this whole thing. I mean, how, how do you feel if you would know that the sin I would talk about this morning is the biggest struggle that you have in your life? Not easy, right? It's also true that most of us do things that... <laughs> We don't want to do. You know, I think we can all identify with what Paul wrote, right? Where he said, he made this statement. He, uh, I, maybe, I, yeah, he said, I, I do not understand what I do. I, I, I put this up on the screen a few weeks ago when I was told you about my struggle with anger and profanity. He said, I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do, but what I hate, I do. I've had an enough conversations with fellow believers who are gay or lesbian to know that being gay or lesbian is not something they, cho they choose, that they've chosen. Where they've said there, there was never a time when I was physically or romantically attracted to someone of the opposite sex. And they've said that as much as they wish this wasn't true and as much as they, they prayed their hearts out about this, it hasn't changed for them. But they committed themselves to a celibate lifestyle. And, 
But they will tell you the temptation is always with them to break that temptation. Their struggles to keep their minds pure and to stay away from the internet and make the right choices are the same as any one of us who are, who are straight. The thing that's so important for us to remember is that we're not accountable for our orientation with, you know, the, our own struggles that we have that are just... Part of, part of who we are, our personality, that, that differs so much for each one of us. But we're all held accountable for our actions. In the same way that I have respect for every believer who chooses to follow Jesus and resist temptation, I have equal respect for my gay and lesbian brothers and sisters in Christ who are committed to following Jesus, to live a celibate lifestyle no matter how great the temptation it is to do otherwise. And then we must always lead with Jesus, with grace and not morality. It's critical that when we approach this issue that our goal as followers of Jesus is not to fix people. Sometimes I see Christians going around with an attitude, I'm going to fix you, you know. And if you're ever on the receiving end of that, you know how bad, how bad that makes you feel. Our responsibility is not to fix the other person. It's to love them and introduce them to the eternal Son of God who came to this earth to be their Savior. Because the truth is, we all need a Savior to rescue us and save us from our own sinfulness. We all can struggle with greed and we can all struggle with envy and we've all lied and we've all been hateful and we've all gossiped and we've all slandered and we've all been arrogant and we've all been judgmental and we've all lusted and we've all been, un we've all been selfish and uncaring and impatient and the list can go on and on, right? Now you can say amen. Boy, I hope you agree. Andy Hofer's on staff here. It's your brother who's a pastor. His name is Ty Thomas. I'm lead pastor of a church in Iowa. I love what he wrote to his church. This is just part of it. He said, every Sunday our church fills up with people who are sinners saved by grace. To varying degrees, each of us still struggle with sin. Some of us have areas of secret sin that we refuse to surrender to God, while others of us have sinful patterns of pride and malice or materialism or the unwillingness to forgive others. Our goal should always be that we are seeking to surrender our hearts and lives to the will of God, which has been laid out for us in Scripture. The way our culture has forced homosexuality to the forefront does not make it a bigger sin issue than any other, and it is never outside the bounds of God's grace and God's forgiveness. I am, uh, well, there's more. <laughs> I thought there was more. So he said, my prayer, my prayer is that we see this as an opportunity to engage people in meaningful conversations that are committed to the truth of Scripture, but resonate with the love that God has for everyone. In the days ahead, let's remember that this issue will not be one on Facebook or through politics, but instead is best played out in face-to-face -face conversations in a Christ-like way. Amen to that.
I'm really looking forward to next Sunday. What a privilege it's going to be for us to have Ed Noble with us. Lead pastor of Journey Church in La Mesa, California. And Ed's going to speak to us about the power of God's grace in loving people who do not believe what we believe. I hope you all come back. All right? Well, let's, uh, let's finish this time in worship. Okay, great. <laughs> Can I pray, Rob, as you go, coming out? I'm sorry. Really remiss. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Father, I'm, I'm so grateful to you for your, your grace in our lives. So grateful that you have spoken truth into us, that you will always do that. I thank you for the privilege that I've had as a child to have to experience uh, your grace in such a real way through my parents and church and friends. And Father, so grateful that they've spoken truth into my life. God, I would pray for all of us this morning that we would be full of grace and full of truth. Father, please strengthen and deepen within us your love for all people, for everybody, for all of us and all of our struggles. For your honor, God, for your glory, and in Christ's name, amen.